Hi, I'm Jagmeher Jagmedan, and welcome to Atlan Ventures Podcast, where we interview successful Gen Z entrepreneurs and investors to give perspective on the trends and companies that are shaping our future. Atlan Ventures is a $1 million independent student fund based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We write C-checks and companies solving problems felt by our generation, and since our inception in 2018, we have backed 13 companies. To learn more about our team, check out atlanventures.com. Our guest this week is Paul Genberg, an advisor to Atlan Ventures. Paul is the current interim CEO of Studio X, an energy innovation studio backed by Shell, having previously been at BCG Digital Ventures and Target. Paul, how are you today? How's stuff been with you? I'm good. Thanks for, for asking, Jagmar. How about you? Keeping pretty all right. You know, stuff's been going being remote for about one year now. Same here. I think the, we've all adjusted to some degree, but I think things keep getting thrown left and right. And I think if, if one thing that's happened over the last year is being comfort with being comfortable with discomfort, I think is the name of the game. Yeah, absolutely. I can see that you have your ski boots in the background, I think. A little fun change of scenery for you. Yeah, I mean, it makes for a good conversation starter uh, at the start of meetings when people see my background, which is the rack in my garage where I've set up my office, given my kids are in Zoom school, as I like to call it. I totally understand. Me going through Zoom University right now, I don't even know at times how we pay attention in school and like getting everyone all connected at a time. So totally resonate with you over there. I think, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, this year, hopefully with the vaccines coming through, uh, things will start to feel like they're going back to normal. I think it's going to take a while, but you know, it is looking a little bit better by, uh, by, by every day. Fingers crossed with that one. I know Minnesota recently held back some restrictions so with the vaccine coming out, hopefully things are getting back to normal soon. How are things over there in California? Yeah, California is, I think, in the same boat. I think they, things are moving faster than expected, which is good. And to start things off, would you mind giving a brief overview of your whole career journey and how you got to L.A.? Yeah, absolutely. So originally born and raised in Geneva, Switzerland. So I uh, grew up there. My father and my mother lived there before we were born, my sister and I. Eventually moved to the States for, to go to the univer- to university. Started out on the East Coast in Vermont, studying computer science at the University of Vermont. Uh, decided that computer science per se wasn't really my, my path. So moved to New York to attend uh, Pratt Institute and got a design degree in industrial design. So designing physical products. And uh, that's where I started my career, designing cookware, tools and ga- kitchen tools and gadgets, cutlery, uh, eventually moved to footwear, which I'm a big, uh, I'm a big shoe geek, not a sneaker head. Uh, I love sneakers, but I just like shoes in general. So I like dress shoes, sneakers, obviously, but also just shoes. Uh, and I, I did that for a few years. And eventually where I crossed path with the University of uh, Minnesota is when I moved to Minneapolis to work at Target. And I worked at Target for over six years in their product and design and development team. While at Target, I, I had the opportunity to get my part-time MBA at the University of Minnesota. 
the Carlson School of Management. You know, Target at the time was offering a program where they paid for it. So that made a lot of sense uh, to me, uh, not to, have to, to get indebted by another 200,000 uh, as, as far as business schools goes. And from there, moved to Los Angeles and California for both professional and family uh, reasons. Um, and I've been in California and in Redondo Beach in particular for the last five and a half years, I think, roughly. Career-wise, was a designer by trade for uh, up until I joined and while I joined early on at Target. After that, I, as I was at Target and as I was doing my, my MBA, I realized that what I really was interested in was the process of creating new products and services not necessarily the end result of a, and, and when you create new products and services, it's not just the designer's lens that need to come forward. That's one angle. That's one aspect that is important, but you really have to have a well-rounded picture not of, of how to build. And, and in, in sort of the design frame, design thinking framework, there's sort of the desirability lens. There's the viability. So, which is, you know, do, do people want what you, the, the idea that you have, right? The, the product that you have. And then there's the viability lenses. Can you make money? Can you win in that space? And then there's the feasibility lens, which is, you know, can you actually get it built? And that framework works for both, whether you're building a digital product or whether you're, you're a fully physical business, right? Like you need to understand your demand. You need to make a viable business out of it and you need to make sure and figure out how op you, you, you build it out from a technology standpoint and operationally, right? And those three lenses really, you know, got my juices flowing. I really loved the, the interactions that you and, and, and collaborating with peers across those different areas. And, and so that's where I really, my journey shifted from being a pure designer, product, desi product designer, product developer to being more of an innovation strategist. And so towards the end of my career at Target, I would say half my time was spent doing extra projects with the enterprise strategy team and various other strategy teams in Target to think about uh, the future of retail, future of various categories. And, and what led me to DV was essentially this notion that I had spent all of my career in retail and in consumer, and I wanted to explore other, uh, other industries as well. Um, so that was reason number one. Number two, I'd been in-house the whole time. So I'd been on an in-house design team in one, in a, one shape or another uh, my whole career. So I, and I wanted to try the consulting model and, and working from project to project and, and working for different companies uh, in, uh, over a, small, a shorter period of time. And then third, I wanted to move to California because by that time I was married, I had two kids and family was uh, on the West Coast and we wanted to get closer to the so. All of that combined, I started to look at companies and, and one of the companies that really struck, at, struck me was uh, Digital Ventures, which is the business builder, uh, product builder arm of Boston Consulting Group, uh, fully owned by Boston Consulting Group. And you know, they, they had the right mix of uh, venture architects, which are sort of business strategists, uh, strategic designers and, and designers at large, and then uh, technologists as well. So, so I felt like that was the right place to to be that entrepreneurial consulting person working on different in, in, in different industries. So I joined DV and in my time at DV, I launched, you know, I think six startups externally to a, and then a dozen or so internal products to the corporates, to our clients. And on the last part of my tenure at DV, I worked with, uh, with Shell, the big oil giant. 
to build and launch Studio X, which is where I am now, I wasn't ready to let that go. And so I decided to leave DV to join Studio X as part of their leadership team. And so right now I'm the interim CEO and head of product for Studio X. Great to hear your journey going all the way from Geneva, Switzerland, to quick stop in the East Coast before going to the real golden country in the Midwest, and then eventually getting tired of the winter and moving out to California, spend time with DV, and then now at Studio X. So great to hear that. Yeah, it's been a heck of a ride. No doubt about that. Now, do you mind if you may break down into what exactly is Studio X? You may talk about some of the work you do with Studio X. Yeah, so Studio X is a product studio. And, and what I mean by that is uh, we're, we're not a, a, a typical startup where we're working on one product in one industry. What we are is we, we are trying to solve big problems for the energy industry at large. We're starting with exploration, which is upstream energy. And we, we've launched three, three products, really two products and one program. The three, uh, two of those are uh, Zeek and Xcover on the product side. And then Six Lab is our no strings attached incubator. And, uh, and so that's more of a program than a product per se, right? So the Six Lab, really why that exists is when, as we were building out, as we were creating Studio X, we realized that there wasn't not as much activity as we would like on entrepreneurial activity, uh, venture cap activity uh, in upstream energy. Um, there's some, but not, it, it's more downstream. And so we wanted to promote new thinking, lateral thinking. You know, we wanted to promote innovation in that space uh, because it's, it serves the industry well if, if, if there's that type of activity. And so we did the no strings attached because we really wanted to have a much more of, a, of an altruistic purpose where, where we didn't want to have to take equity into any of the startups that we, that we, we had in our portfolio to really promote more ideas, more people in the, in the space. Um, and we have eight startups now that are at various stages. Xcover is a virtualization platform to, that enables geoscientists to do work remotely at any time on, very, on proprietary data. So the idea of being able to, for example, be in Denver, Colorado, and work on some project in, uh, in Western Australia and all of that powered by a cloud infrastructure, that really is what uh, Xcover does. So it's connecting a technology with a, the with a talent to do specialized work in the geosciences. For Zeek, Zeek is, a, is an interesting beast because it's, a, it's essentially a, a crowdsourcing platform that takes ideas from a community of data scientists, software engineers, geoscientists to solve big data problems in uh, oil and gas. And we take those and uh, with the community, we build, we productize those into tools that are then deployed back into the industry. And so the real value is to be able to use these tools that use machine learning algorithms to process data in a much more efficient way. And really it's to augment the work that is being done by geoscientists in the industry. Now, those are the ones that we start out with. We have as a remit for Studio X to not only help out in uh, and find solutions to problems in exploration, we also are looking at uh, energy transition and, and how the industry needs to shift from a conventional-based energy, so, uh, con conventional energy sources to 
to a broad panoply of sources. So the, whether those are renewables or, or otherwise, right? So we, we're actively working to uh, be part of that and be act, you know, be change agents in the industry uh, um, in, in that capacity. Hopefully that answers your question around StudioX. Yeah, uh, definitely helps a lot. Uh, definitely with the energy industry, huge. Like I'm really passionate about the energy industry and like, especially you're saying like a lot of innovations in the downstream side, but not as much like the upstream. And a lot of bigger oil companies do a lot of research and development or read public about that for what they're planning to use for new technologies. Yeah, I think what's interesting uh, and around the, the industry and the, tr the, tr the biggest trend in the industry I would say uh, is the role that each player has to to play in in energy transition, right? And they are all very Shell in particular is very cognizant that it 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 needs to and wants to be a participant in that energy transition, but we also have to be cognizant that that transition is going to take decades, and and renewables is not necessarily the answer to all the all the energy needs that the that the industry uh, and that the world needs, right? So I think what's important to me uh, and to Studio X is to really think about what are the, not, not just societal needs, but uh, the needs of individuals and, and crafting new products, new ventures that solve for those needs in a, uh, in, in, in a both po you know, positive way for society at large, but also viable uh, as a viable business because if it's not viable, then it, it's not sustainable in the long run, right? Yeah, definitely agree with that too. Like, I think there's just a giant misconception as well as like, what exactly is the future going to look like? And especially with now COVID, like a lot of plastics, those are basically created from petrochemicals. So we just can't say gone with oil because I mean, where else we also can get another source of carbon that easily and can make plastic on the scale of that level. So, I mean, it's always a big trade-off and hopefully in the future we're on the right track, but to make sure that we're not just taking like uneducated guess or uneducated decision based on the information there. So great to hear like your work with Studio X and here's like what the problems that they're solving. Yeah, it's, ex it's an exciting time. It's, it's all positive. I think there's a lot of change happening um, and, and we're, we're uh, excited to be a part of it. So I'm going to transition a little bit more towards your interaction with Gen Z. And I'm kind of curious for you is like, how did you first hear about Atlan Ventures? And then what's kind of got you interested in helping students involved with entrepreneurship and venture at an early age? That's a great question. I think, so got involved with Atlan probably two, two and a half years ago. And it, it kind of happened, uh, happenstance a little bit because I was already living in, in California at the time, but towards the end of my stay in, in Minneapolis, you know, was much more involved in sort of the entrepreneurial scene. So whether it was attending the, the Minnesota Cup or, or any of the events associated with that and, and just networking in the space. So I, I started to get sort of a, an interesting network of individuals, uh, but I, I was essentially uh, um, reached out by uh, an individual that was, I think at the time leading Atland and, and the interesting part of Atlan is that, you know, the, the, the individuals involved, like yourself, uh, rotate in and out, right, given that you're a student body, right? So it's, the, there's, it's an interesting model in, uh, for, in terms of longevity and, and transfer of, of knowledge and, uh, f within just Atlan itself. But 
how I got involved, uh, basically looking at deal flow, participating on the due diligence that the team was doing for, for potential investments, right? Now, the second part of your question around why did I, why is that interesting and, and why, why getting, get involved with students? For me, the, the primary um, reason is um, I, th I think there's honestly a need to give back. I mean, as corny as that question, as that answer sounds, but I think that at times I wish I had had, as a student, had more access to individuals, uh, to professionals, and just learn from those while I was a student. So I think that's part of the reasons why I think it's important. On the other side, it's also students are generally speaking, super enthusiastic, optimistic for the most part around life. And because they, they know that the, the, you know, they have most of it in front of them. So, so I think there's, there's just a, a level of, of creativity and, and an energy that I fuel myself from as well. Right. So whether it's spitting in Atland or being a mentor to to various students, student organizations, I, I get a lot of energy out of engaging with young adults and budding professionals and entrepreneurs. Definitely great thing to hear too, like giving back. And as well as you're right about the students wise, like that's where a lot of entrepreneurship takes place at the universities. I'm kind of curious, like with your work with Gen Z as well, like what are some big trends that you're noticing that are pretty big in Gen Z, but not as big in say in other generations? Like culturally speaking, I think uh, Gen Z and, and obviously I'm, you know, this is uh, one person's opinion, right? I think there's the, so I don't want to, uh, I don't want to apply a, a, an archetype or a stereotype to a whole generation, right? So I'll, I'll caveat my answer with that. But I think um, culturally Gen Z, if we think about when they've come they're they're fully and completely digitally native. And on top of that, they're also... Uh, completely uh, mobile native, right? And so that leads to some interesting behaviors and, and expectations from, uh, from th that group of individuals. So I think on one side, they're very quick to adopt new technology, very quick to adopt new interaction paradigms because they're used to downloading an app, trying it out, and, and if they don't like it, they, they ditch it, they get to the next one, and they, and they learn these paradigms much faster than, than other generations. They're just used to switching their thinking around that. I think they're also much quicker to adopt different forms of technology and comfort with just prototyping and testing new ideas and, and, and new technology than, than other generations past because of the speed at which technology and especially digital technology is, is progressing at. I think on the flip side of that, and it's always a coin, right? There's always a, there's a, there's a really positive side. And then there's, a, there's, a not, there's areas for, that are uh, opportunities for growth. And, you know, even as they enter the uh, workforce, I think this, the, they can push for, for change and, and in, a, in a very positive way. But at the flip side, I think there's, there's a level of impatience with status quo. So they, and this is my personal experience, uh, is they can get uh, impatient with uh, processes in, in, in a business that might be taking too slow or that they perceived as, uh, they perceive as, uh, as not being equitable. And so I think that's sort of a, you know, 
it can be a detriment to their professional success. It, you know, harnessed appropriately, they can be fantastic change agents. Uh, but I think if I were to say one word is, is a little a bit of patience and empathy towards older generations is I think, well, um, just like older generations need to have empathy to and understanding and try to reach out both uh, on both ends, right? It's not, a, it's, a, it's not one group's uh, responsibility, it's everyone's, but um, you have to be willing to meet people uh, in the middle. I think another thing culturally, I mean, and, and something that really came to the fore this past year uh, with, with all of the pandemic, but also sort of cultural turmoil, DEI, so diversity, equity, and inclusion, I think they, they have a level of awareness and, and a level of connectedness to those issues in a way that I think is not as closely inherent in other groups and other generations. And I think that's like, that's something, if I were to say like lean, a place where they can really lean in and help an organization, uh, large or small to really shine is to, to help drive the conversations, the, the awareness of DEI as it's an important issue. And as, uh, and so I think that's an interesting, to me, that's where I think I lean into and, and, and look, and look to understand their, uh, the, their perspective, because I think they are much more attuned to it than uh, in part because I think they get their their sources of information from a lot from a potentially un, untraditional news sources or or different and they're different you know they're not tied to uh, you know national news media which has its purpose and I think and 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 the commentary and especially if it's it's legitimate journalism is very important but I think there's an opportunity to to break some of those paradigms a little bit and and certainly Gen Z is more accustomed to doing that than baby boomers for that like for example yeah i definitely can agree to that like i get most of my news from uh morning brew reddit i don't actually open up my news apps as much on my phone anymore i think the only time i do if like if wall street journal has a notification that sounds interesting i'll open it up aside from that i rarely check my news on apps like i always do it from like uh reddit or morning brew so that's easily accessible to me I mean, that's interesting because I think, and, and to challenge you a little bit on that, I think groups need to not uh, entrench in their own eco chambers, right? Reddit and, and Morning Brew have a particular style of, of, of news. And there's a lot of confirmation bias in those ones because it's, it's built off of commentary, right? And versus traditional news media might be held, is held to different journalistic standards at times, right? In terms of of making sure that they've fact-checked everything. Usually, if you go to the New York Times or any, even the conservative news media, especially if they're established, they they abide by uh, by very clear journalistic rules. They mess up just like anybody else at times. But, and so I think being open to actually consuming news from progressive and con conservative news media, from new age sources to established sort of old school media. You know, I think that's something that uh, as a society, regardless of generation, we need to get better at. I think technology needs to be get better at surfacing news from all sorts of different uh, sources. So I had a, a friend of mine, he actually started a, uh, he took a sabbatical and, he, um, and he, he started a project that's really cool, which is called, and now it's called bluewhiteandred.org, I think. Uh, uh, and 
essentially he collected news from like hundreds of sources and he would bit on a barometer of red to blue he would highlight uh, around a common topic the difference of how a news outlet portrays a particular topic and to me that's really important because consuming news and content from various sources helps you not be so polarized you can still have your beliefs whether wherever on the spectrum you lie but at least you are capable of understanding and picturing the other side's argument and that's to me if if there's anything that's been lost in the last decade it's the fact that we are incapable uh, at least as it stands especially in the political elite of of reaching out and really trying to have a more bipartisan or multi-partisan approach to governing and and consuming content consuming information i think that definitely is huge thing when you work on especially last year showed us like there needs to be focused on dei a lot of other things that gen z is taking on their initiative but like, I think as Mark Andreessen said, like the whole, we, we need to rebuild, like the whole system, the United States is at a point now where we're still operating like the 1950s or 60s at times in certain areas of our uh, economy or society. And we need to change for the modern generation and rebuild to make sure that it's time that we become more, more advancing of ideations and technologies. Yeah. I mean, you know, what's interesting is uh, Andreessen, obviously luminary in the VC world and, and sort of drove a lot of the entrepreneurial ecosystem and Silicon Valley and so forth. And it's from a technology standpoint, it's very easy to say, yeah, let's rebuild. From a society standpoint, that's extremely difficult. And so, although I understand his intent, I think the framing needs to, needs to be different. I think the framing is we need to find the places, yes, where things are completely broken and, and, and look at new, fresh approaches. In other areas, I think we have systems in place that are extremely strong, you know, even in healthcare, Medicaid, uh, Medicare, those are all, those are strong uh, institutions. They provide, you know, relatively uh, a really good service when you think of from a global scale, you know, they can always improve, but that's the point. How do you uh, not necessarily recreate or uh, from scratch, but how do you evolve something for the better and uh, for, for it to be more equitable, more, uh, more inclusive? Uh, so, so I think, although I, kinda, I get where he's coming from, I think that's his context he's coming from. I feel like there's a need to modulate that and, and not necessarily take such a technocentric view on it and more of, okay, where, where can we make big changes? I think, for example, UBI, universal basic income, is something that's been tested out for decades and in various areas in the, of the world. And more often than not has actually, if you look at the data objectively, has proved out to be a model that provides more, more safety as well as in, in, in improves prospects for people. That's an, an area that, yeah, okay, now let's, let's reinvent, re, recreate, right? But you know, I think wholesale change uh, at a society level I think, I don't think works. You alienate too many people. So I think what you need to do is how do you bridge the gaps? How do you bring people together? How do you include more people in the conversation uh, in a productive way versus in bipartisan way or in bipartisan ways versus uh, partisan ways? Definitely going forward. I think you can see that and great insights there. Like I, 
that's something that we've always been kind of curious about like what would a different generation do to us or like what is with the path for and i think that kind of sets up the framework for anyone listening to this of what needs to be done mm-hmm. so on the kind of topic too like you mentioned you had a lot of things you admire about gen z things you question about gen z i'm going to give it time to say like if there's one thing you're really curious about gen z like why do they do this thing or something about this generation like what's one question you'd have about gen z um it's interesting and again this is i'm this is my bias right and so i'll frame it that way to me my perspective is this notion of instant gratification and i think it's a byproduct if i if i try to externalize a little bit and i think it's a byproduct of consuming content you know hat show on netflix then disney's plus uh, hulu at your fingertips at any time, you know, the, the constant feed of Instagram, TikTok, Snap, you know, and I think so, so it's shaped a way of consuming information that leads to wanting to get everything at their fingertips at, at, uh, instantly. And, and that's really about, you know, you know, biologically, and I'm no, I'm not a biologist, but it's, to me, it's like, oh, you're getting your dopamine kick every time you swipe, right? Every time you get to the next the, the next reel or, or the next video or the next piece of information. And so, and, and the, the downside of that I see in some ways is for me as a, a business leader is, you know, it's, it's hard because you want to engage them. I want to make sure that they are uh, the, 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 my, the employees that I have that are, uh, you know, younger in their careers, that they get the, uh, the growth that they want, but, sometimes growth just takes time and it's very hard to to manage expectations when you say you're doing a great job you just need to do more of it and i i readily admit that's not feedback you want to hear like you want to say tell me exactly what you want me to do i'll do it and then i'll get my promotion or i'll i'll get my reward right and sometimes the the reward is doing the work well over a period of time. And, and that's hard. Like, and I haven't cracked that nut. Uh, I, I don't know exactly sometimes how to approach it. And that's a challenge, right? And so I think, you know, I'd like to understand, going back to the question is, the question I would put out there is, why do you not enjoy the the act of doing, the the, the process? And why is it, that what the, why does it always have to be about the outcome, the the output. Um, and it's almost like a, taking a bit of a, a page of, you know, Zen Buddhism where, you know, it, it's more about the, the performance and, and doing the performance as well as you possibly can versus the, what ultimately comes out of it. So I'm, that, that would be sort of a question that I would pose. I'd love to hear more about. I can talk a little bit about that. As like you often also come biased to being like one out of a billion plus for Gen Z. But exactly, yeah. one thing I've noticed is the rise, especially with growing up with technology, like everything's at our fingertips now. Like I can, it's no longer I need to go to a library, look in the encyclopedia, find that. It's that I can just go into Google, search up, let's say Revolutionary War, for example. We, I can search that up my phone, look into Wikipedia, literally see what war I want to look into, or which battle I want to see. And then from there, just I analyze and get all the information I needed to instead of having to go to my library, 
look to the encyclopedia, realize I'm in the wrong library, take a bus to the other library, and then do the whole process again. Like that just saves so much time. And I think having that instant gratification is something that we've gotten used to in terms of everything has to be kind of community-based now because if we feel this way about something, someone else does too, and it's good to connect there. But I love and like your insights yeah. there too and kind of curious to see what the next generation looks like. Yeah, I mean, to bring it back to sort of a little bit around entrepreneurials and entrepreneurialism and innovation, the thing that I think is missed by having the access, uh, the, the access of information, you talked about the Revolutionary War. So, so you Google and, and get a whole list and you might even be able to access uh, your, the, you know, the library online and, and get access to special reports, right? Or academic papers around the Revolutionary War, let's say. But what that misses is you walking in the library and seeing a stand or in a bookstore and seeing a stand and, and getting uh, drawn into a, a, a completely different topic or bumping into a friend uh, or colleague in the hallway and, and just having that impromptu conversation around something completely different. And from an innovation standpoint, those collisions that happen can, you, you don't know the repercussions. It's like, you know, it's, it's chaos theory, right? Where the, the, the bat of a butterfly wing in Japan can create a hurricane in, in the Gulf of Mexico, right? This notion of one person's interaction with somebody else might lead to something, you know, might lead to a train of thought that might affect your paper on the Revolutionary War because they, they brought up a particular way of thinking, of, uh, thinking about one problem that you can then apply to another topic. That's, I think, what's lost with instant gratification. That's lost with the process of doing. That's what's lost with, and that's where Lean Startup is really, in, in some ways, uh, the way I perceive it, the beauty of it is the willingness to test, iterate, the willingness to, to fail and, and accept failure and learn and grow from that. That gets lost if, if you don't have those failures happen. If you, if, if you get exactly the right information that you initially thought you had in mind for your Revolutionary War paper, you will, you will get the assignment done. But how much better could it have been had you let the exploration happen a little further? And I be, I'm a strong believer in the physicality of the experience. And that's where even the setting of remote work is, is, is concerning to me because I've noticed even within my team that, that there's, less there's less sort of spitballing, there's less, uh, there's less creativity, it's more tactical work. That's dangerous for a company, especially a young company to, to get stuck in versus con continuously innovating. I think that's the thing that I'm worried about if we think about generationally and, it, and, and not opening up. And I'm not saying that that's, uh, that always happens. I think we're, we'll, there'll be a world where we'll go back into offices, at least partially. So, so we'll get back to it. But that's the, the, those are some of the risks that I see and, and challenges for, for society at large if we can't, if we can, can't create those collisions, those, those interesting moments. And I think also to detest to that, like there's now apps being built or communities being built just for that purpose. And it just seems like we're just trying to automate as much as we can. Like say, we're just trying to like optimize our total time per day, but then create apps that basically bring back the times where we had those informal communications and like all the things that we were basically cutting out with our optimizations. Yeah, I mean, and I think, you know, whether it's like it's Clubhouse or whatever the new feature uh, spaces, I think, in, uh, in tw on Twitter, you know, those are meant to, to foster communication, but typically they are thematic based. So you have to want to go into a 
a room that is about a particular topic being discussed. That to me is, is not embracing completely open opportunities, right? Where you're literally walking down the street and you, you know, and, and you bump into somebody, you know, or you see a street performance that inspires you to think about, uh, you know, uh, or inspires you to, to launch maybe an NFT, right? Like, uh, and you, you, you film it and you mint it and you, you know, and, and not, we won't talk about the legality of that, but, you know, I think to me, that's, there's, there's a, there's a level of being physically involved in your community and, and with your peers that gets missed if, if we live in a completely digital world. Right. Um, and, and the digital world is so, it's so formal in a way. Right. I think it's like, it's, you get a, you have an app for just about everything. And that app does that thing very well. But um, again, you, you don't allow for uh, a little, a little bit of happenstance. Sure thing. So you kind of transitioning a little bit. We've had a pretty deep con conversation about future Gen Z's trends you're seeing there. But one thing I would kind of want to bring back to you is personally for you, you've had the opportunity to build products internally, whether you do as like an industrial designer for like a larger company or a corporate client. And you also have the consulting route, which is more entrepreneurial. In your opinion, like which one would you recommend to someone who's starting out their career in terms of they want to go into design or some sort of like internal building mode for a company versus the consulting or entrepreneurial route? Yeah, that, that's a, uh, a really good question. I'll take the, the, the entrepreneur route first. And starting a career in the entrepreneur, intrapreneur's uh, route is, is actually a little bit difficult quite honestly, because when you come in uh, as more of a junior employee, uh, analyst or what have you, right, you tend to end up doing work that is more tactical uh, because, you know, that, that's usually what the, the role uh, that you've been hired to do entails. So it's a little harder to get involved in, not impossible, but it's a little harder to get involved in and get the level of, of support very early on in your career. You know, so that's one thing, but then the entrepreneurial route is interesting because you, you know, you can have massive, you can do things and, and be creative and have massive impact uh, right away because usually a business has, uh, has customers that you can affect quickly. There's resources. Usually a company has, is, is you know, uh, at least relatively well-funded or has, you know, significant revenue. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of uh, opportunities there. Again, I think the, you have to be more patient. Uh, there's a lot of process and, you know, there's more process in an entrepreneurial route than the other uh, being outside. So, so being willing to go through the, the jump through the hoops uh, will be something that you have to be comfortable with. Um, I also think that uh, getting a, a sponsor, uh, executive sponsor, and essentially giving you air cover to do that work is really important. So you get sort of the tops down support and clearance, and then you can work from the ground up to, to be entrepreneurial within the organization. On the flip side, so being an entrepreneur early in your career, you know, part of it is it's, it's early on in your career, you, you have, <laughs> you have less, usually you have less restrictions on your ability to do the work, right? You can put in as many hours as you want because usually you, you, you're single or if you do, you're, you're in a couple and young, you may not have kids, 
you know, and so, so there's, you know, I'm just speaking from experience when I really started my, uh, entrepreneurial route, I was older and, and, you know, possible. It just, you know, you have to have an understanding, uh, significant other and, and you have to, to realize that you're going to have to make sacrifices that you may not have had to do early on in your career. I think, um, I think what's interesting is, you know, be having conviction, uh, early on in your career may be harder because you have less experience to lean against. But the, the flip of that is you can bring that level of credibility by making sure that you back your convictions with clear data and whether that's qualitative or quantitative. And that's what makes, you know, any successful entrepreneur, right? They're able to, they have the, the vision and, and, and the, the guts to believe in something in particular, and even in the face of skepticism, but the way, but they convince people by may, being very diligent in justifying their convictions. So I think the, the entrepreneur, uh, the external route is really interesting for people that, you know, um, are really, really convinced that they have an idea that, that is worth solving. The, the one thing I will say for entrepreneurs, especially, is that um, I'm seeing a lot of Gen Zs and people that are early in the career go the B2C, so B, you know, business to consumer route. And that's creating an app for, for an audience and, and it's much more consumer content driven. That's ridiculously hard. And, and because one, it's really hard to get a, a, a critical mass of people wanting to use your product because you're fighting so much noise, right? There's so many different apps, so many different services that are competing for eyeballs. And, and, and it's also that consumers are trained to want things for free nowadays. So it's very hard to make a sustainable business. And so everybody reverts to market, to, to advertising but that's if you don't have the eyeballs you your your ad revenue is not just gonna, not going to be that great so it's it's going to be hard on the flip side i think going the b2b route is is interesting because if you can really find a a, a problem that an industry has not just a, not just one company but the whole industry has and if you solve it really well companies will pay for it and, and, and they will certainly be interested in, especially if you help them be more effective, efficient, so, you know, save cost or gain more, more revenue, you know, the typical uh, revenue drivers. And so I think that's something that's often overlooked. And I'd recommend younger entrepreneurs to look at that. I think the, the flip side is, you know, you may not have as much experience to pull from in a particular industry. But I, you know, sometimes going in a pro and looking at a situation with uh, with child's eyes, right, where, where or a beginner mindset, actually provides you an advantage in terms of thinking about new ways of doing and new ways of working. So I think that's a uh, that's one advice I would uh, probably uh, give to Gen Z entrepreneurs. No, definitely, it's great. I think also a lot of insights you're giving to me are actually make me reconsider some things I'm also considering after I graduate too. So I think if, if I get some information from this, I'm pretty certain that there's a lot of Gen Z's listening to this will have a lot of help from it. Hopefully, hopefully I'm making sense. <laughs> and no worries. <laughs> I, I totally understand you and I'm sleep. I'm on like four or five hours of sleep right now, middle of the day. So if I can understand you in that, we're good. Awesome. 
And then just to kind of wrap up things, what are you currently, let's say, listening to or reading right now outside of your work? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, there's one book that I've been uh, going through on and off, but I'm, I've been back into it. It's called Utopia for Realists by uh, Rutger Bregman. I think he's a Dutch uh, economist. Um, I don't know if you ever saw, there was this, uh, this video clip of him being on a panel at the World Economic Forum in Davos a couple years ago, where basically he's a proponent of, of universal income and, you know, these ultra capitalist uh, audience was completely shocked and, and in many ways distraught by what he was saying. And he got a lot, obviously got a lot of press out of it. And I, I, it's a really interesting book because it, it speaks about a pretty complex societal issue in very clear terms with very clear examples of where it's gone well, but also where, where the challenges are. So he's, I think he, it's obviously he's for UBI, but he brings a, a, you know, a more balanced view to it. So that's one thing that I've been reading. I've been listening a lot about, you know, podcasts and very other things around NFT. So non-fungible tokens. I think that, and that's more of just personal interest, super interested in, in understanding this movement in art that is NFT and building off of sort of the crypto movement. And, you know, I don't claim that I understand it. I'm still trying to learn. I think it's, but it's an interesting way to think about and to actually observe a new medium coming into an industry that was so physically driven, right? The art world was about objects in space more often like 90 percent of it and and seeing that being completely thrown out not thrown out but seeing a movement around how to legitimize digital art and provide an economic outlet for digital artists to me is super interesting coming from a, a digital world and so that's uh, another area that i think is it's worth watching because it's it's really seeing something nascent evolve right it's it, it's going to go through fits and starts and you know you're seeing i mean just recently people sold a piece for 69 million dollars and that just happened within within a few months it went from selling for selling for you know 67,000 to now being 69 million i mean it's crazy uh and so i think to me that's just fascinating doubt i mean i tried to explain what nft was on the clubhouse event i think it was with the Saba Karim from Techstars and I botched it completely like so I totally understand you like it's still such an interesting space and super cool to learn more about this and see what how it could apply in the future but I'll definitely check out the book Utopia for Realists I've been kind of a big fan of like the theoretical books behind economic policies uh, so I think that'll get you back to me to get back into more of that my nonfiction reading there yeah, I mean, it's somewhat, it somehow builds, I mean, the title obviously builds off of uh, Utopia by Thomas More, a big fan, like famous economist, I think so, it, it, which sort of is the, the grandfather of, of UBI. And so it's, it's an interesting modern take to it. For sure. And then next thing too, what are some of the, say, hobbies you're picking up right now, just during quarantine? Oh, hobbies during quarantine. That's really uh, interestingly enough, like it's, it's, I don't know if it, you could call this a hobby, but I've become a big fan of, of taking calls while walking. So I'll just literally, I'll step out of my garage 
and I'll just start walking around the neighborhood while I'm on a call instead of being locked in on uh, in front of a Zoom uh, or you know uh, sitting at my desk even if it's on a call I'm like well why don't I move and and you know I don't know if this is my you know wishful thinking on my part but I feel like I'm able to think more clearly I'm able to physically interact with the person's quote unquote uh, on, on the other line and in a way that I sometimes I feel like you don't get now with uh, just being tied to your desk. So that's, I guess, kind of a hobby that I've taken. Other than that, just I'm lucky to be able to spend way more time that I've, than I've ever been able to have with my kids over the last year. Uh, so I'm really grateful for that. You know, going skiing, playing basketball on an, in our driveway and you know, just being there. I used to, you know, with DV Digital Ventures, I was traveling two, two to three weeks a month sometimes even. Uh, and, you know, I would not see, and I would only see them on the weekends. So I am blessed to be able to, you know, there's sort of the, the silver lining as, as, as much as you can say that for, for the situation that we're in is that I, I'm able to connect with my family a whole lot more. And I'm grateful for that. Great to hear. And the last off, final question you mentioned you're a big fan of shoes, and I'm a little bit of a sneakerhead myself. I literally have my pair of one, the Jordan 1s right next to me. So I'm kind of curious about what is your favorite sneaker of all time or favorite shoe of all time and why? Yeah, I think it's the Air Max 90s. Generally speaking, that's sort of the platform that I like the most, just the style. Nike issued a, a Flywire uh, a Flywire um, Air Max that was really amazing, um, but lately that they don't do Flywires really anymore, uh, so it's hard to find. But another one that I really like is uh, a Nike. Uh, was it Flyknit uh, with the Air Max ninety sole? But it was a Nike Air Max free, so the footbed was much lighter, much more flexible. They're usually pretty stiff. And so I, I think that was, that's sort of the ones that I kind of just gravitate to. I have, I have too many of those pairs in different colorways. Love to hear it. It's always great to just bond around shoes. I think that's the, probably the biggest thing I've learned from quarantine is that shoes are, as much as you do not have opportunities to really go out and show them to your friends, you, they're still an essential part of your life just because just kind of add that sentimental value. Yeah, I think uh, if you were to ask me what pair of shoes I've worn the most in the last year, they'd be Birkenstocks. Like I've been wearing those constantly. So, cause they're easy to put on, comfortable, and I don't have to be always completely presentable. So uh, that's the advantage of working remotely. Awesome, love to hear it. Well, anyway, Paul, it's great having you today. Love the insights and really appreciate just kind of walking through your whole journey and as well as some advice for Gen Z or entrepreneurs really interested in wanting to make their mark. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate you giving me the time and the platform and, you know, good luck with, uh, with continued studies, even though we are in, uh, you know, in tough times, remote times. <laughs>